Cool. All right. I have Tyler Calder. I can see just from from here up. <laughs> there. Is that better? That's better. That's better. Tyler Calder. He's a longtime friend. Been almost 10 years, I think. Yeah. 10 years. Started off as opponents fighting for an internship that we ended up tying and then we both got the internship and realized we actually were really good friends taught each other well you taught me a lot about r and git and python early on in my career so um yeah we have that in common we also like to talk about life philosophy the transcendent coolness of life and tyler somebody who is basically like a polymath. He had a baby recently and I think it was, what is it you brushed up on in your two weeks? Was it computer uh, algorithms? algorithms and computer science? Yeah. It's, yeah. When I have a baby, when I've had a baby, I'm just like, if I can just like shower, <laughs> like that's a huge victory. Well, it's because I gave up showering for so I could <laughs> yeah, okay. get your priorities. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Not coming um, into work. Back in March, I think it was, I discovered this podcast on the Art of Manliness podcast about Kierkegaard on the present and passionless age. And I listened to it and I was really taken by it and kept bugging Tyler about it uh, until he bought the book. I bought the book and then he bought it. He's like, well, this is really cool. I did. So I appreciate <laughs> I'm thankful for your recommendation. So. Maybe I'll take some more of your recommendations into into consideration. There, yeah, we both we both do that. But yeah, so welcome, Tyler. Thank to you. The very first, I think I already said that, the inaugural episode of the Vertical Thinking Podcast. Yeah. Well, I do want to say that you know, you you're the one who taught me to to get interested in R when you did your um, some really cool analysis with uh, text analysis, and I had been like trying to go through hand. 4,000 different survey responses and try to classify them. And you're like, Hey, I did this model. And I was like, Oh, goodness. he's <laughs> going to beat me. He's going to beat me. And that got my competitive streak kicked in. So. Yeah. And in a way we're still kind of doing that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in a cooperative way. In a cooperative competitive way. Um, yeah. So who is Kierkegaard? Like, I mean, a year ago for me, I know I'd heard, heard the name Kierkegaard, but I didn't know his first name, Soren. I didn't know that. I really didn't know much about him. And this is so far really the only book I've read of his work. But um, yeah, have you had any background on his works or his philosophy? No, I mean, I I had not heard of Kierkegaard till you mentioned to him. And so I got the book after you mentioned it. And it just sounded really interesting to some, some, uh, some questions that I've been thinking about at the time and so i picked it up and i read it uh it's really good because it's a, a short read i think the book yeah. itself is like 120 pages long and of that 60 of them are a book review which you don't need to read to understand his his philosophy because he's reviewing in the book the book called two ages so his book is called two ages the age revolution and the present age a literary review so he's reviewing a book written in in Denmark. I always want to say Daneland, uh, Denmark, in the eighteen hundreds when he lived, um, called the Two Ages. And it starts out as review, and at the end, he kind of goes into his philosophy of of what he understands what the author was getting at. The way it's styled is unlike any book I've ever read. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's like a mix. I mean, I, I'm not someone that reads book reviews regularly anyway. I mean, there's like Goodreads, maybe something in the newspaper, but I don't really read a physical newspaper either. Yeah, so I, yeah, I've not, I don't really know. Maybe this was just more common back then to have, but I think the, the funny thing is his review of the book or, you know, it says a literary review, but it's, it's like sermonizing. It's a literary, literary review but it's also like a whole cultural critique of his, mm -hmm. of the times. And it's almost as long as the actual book he's reviewing, which is interesting. I did not know that, but yeah. yeah. Well, he yeah, originally, it says at the beginning, 
in his preface, he's like, I originally intended this for a newspaper, but then realized it was too long. And so he got it published um, by the same person who published the original book, uh, mm. The Two Ages. And so I think what the average person would think of like a, a um, literary review is very stuffy, very, mm-hmm. you know, what you expect at, you know, to be frank, a literature college course right where you're just kind of diving in and oh what does this mean it's not that at all it's very much like he has a a very strong sense of of what it means and and he carries that throughout the the story or throughout his review and then into his critique and philosophy Mm -hmm. this was a a novel by a lady he thought it was a man um yes (laughs) thought that was interesting oh and her name is escaping me right now oh it's 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 thomas C, thomas oh, thomasina gulenborg yeah yeah she she published anonymously her whole life and her son was an editor and mm-hmm. helped her get her books out there um and so yeah i i thought that was interesting so the ti- the book two ages itself is the book that kierkegaard is reviewing and it says here um page ix uh, which as the title suggests contrasts the mentality of the two different generations especially as that mentality is reflect reflected in a family life the first paragraph was kind of a brick for me honestly in the introduction in the introduction yeah, yeah I, I think i have to read it three times and i still don't fully understand it but once i've read the rest of the introduction i can kind of come back and glean a little mm-hmm. bit more <laughs> His writing is not the easiest, you know? No, I mean, it's it's old German. I think it was you that told me that, like, I mean, it's Dutch, not German, or not Dutch, Danish, not German, but they're very influenced with each other, I think. And mm-hmm. was it you that was telling me that, like, the old German philosophers, like, they felt that it was, it got, like, points, feeling points, I don't know, for making things more unintelligible. And so then you're also reading a translation of something that that way sometimes written that way so it is kind of hard to read but you can you can eke out the main points that he's trying to get at yeah i would yeah Yeah. in that point or in that vein i would say don't get like i don't understand what's the sentence mean and let that bog you down yeah you you, you just gotta move on keep moving on things things will stand out and you're like oh this is cool this is cool and if you don't get every sentence, because yeah. I I did not, it's it's thick stuff, but it's a lot of good stuff too. And he's um, he's he's repetitive enough that in in a good way, in the way that he's repeating the same themes in different ways, so that you can kind of start catching on to like, okay, this is what he means, without being so much. That you're like, okay, we got it. Let's move on to the next point. It's mm-hmm. it's a good, you know, circling back on the main thesis that he's got. That's true. Book, which we keep circling around. So maybe we should just get into <laughs> the thesis of the book. Yeah. He, I would just say too, like, he's going to say the same thing in many different times in many different ways. So you're bound, like the odds are you're going to, you're going to at least hear his main point in some way or another. But yeah. What is, yeah. Excuse I, me. What stood out to me in the introduction was this idea of being compelled to satisfy the demands of the age. He says on page middle of page eight, he says, then the altered age sometimes voices its demand by accusing the author of unfaithfulness to his age, which is dubious, especially when it is not clear what is to be understood by his age or what or the age for then EO Ipso. I still need to look that up. <laughs> I think uh, I did look it up. I don't remember what it means. I think it's like, yeah, I know Ipso facto is like a fact. So EO Ipso, I think is like. Well, let's just pull it up. Yo, ipso. Yeah, let's pull it up. Let's just get hung up. Keep going. (laughs) Okay, yeah. For then, Yo, ipso, every author inevitably and ultimately becomes unfaithful to his age simply by remaining faithful to his age. Since the age is sophistically always the new replacement. So it seems like if you're going to always try to be unquestionably trying to satisfy what the age is demanding mm-hmm. you're you're just i don't know you're you're always going to be running after it never you know you might satisfy it 
for a year or mm-hmm. less or more. But then, you know, then it will you eventually will be looked down on. Yeah, it's an interesting because at the beginning, like you said, in that first uh, paragraph, he starts talking out about how the, the curious argument that arises between two people who are accusing each other of being unfaithful to some ideal or something like that. And one, when he's saying it's kind of funny because often it's that two people have changed and have come back together. And because they've changed, they are no longer able to communicate the way that they used to, but they haven't realized that, that there's this miscommunication. And so that one's accusing the other of changing, the other one's accusing the other of changing without themselves looking at each other, looking at themselves and seeing, well, have I changed? Like, what have I changed? And this is kind of this idea of consist, maybe consistency isn't the right word, but faithfulness to ideals, faithfulness to something. And he kind of then says, okay, that can happen. That's easy to understand when it's two individuals, but when it's a, an individual arguing against an author of having changed, which I guess is still two individuals, but like an author's giving his philosophy or whatever they're trying to, 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 to show in their book, it's a little easier to point if there were differences and changes, but then he's making the point that sometimes those differences aren't differences in, in the author's outlook on life, but differences in the, the ages and the times and the way people respond to what he's mm-hmm. saying, right? If things have become more agreeable, then, you know, some people might be like, hey, you used to be a disagreeable curmudgeon and I like that. But now you're just agreeing with the times. And it's like, well, maybe the times have changed to agree with him and he hasn't changed. Or maybe it's the opposite direction, right? Hey, you used to be so agreeable and now you're just a curmudgeon. Well, it could be that the author is being consistent and that everyone else has changed around him. I think that's what he's kind of getting into. And he starts talking about the demands of the times and how precarious that is. And I think that's one of those things where to say it, seems obvious like yeah you don't want to go with just go with the flow but there's a lot of times where it feels like well of course you need to go with demands of the times because of different rings like the the times we have the most up-to-date sense of of morality now and so if you are up to date with that then you're totally out of date and you need to catch up you need to get with the times right that's a very common phrase Um, yeah i'm not with the times no yeah I no longer have a smartphone. I have a flip phone. And I I really feel that. I accidentally dropped it. I don't know if I told you. I I dropped it. It did a belly flop on the tile. And now the screen is really messed up. <laughs> so, yeah. I have even it's, less of a pocket computer. I was going to say, the thing is with the modern smartphone, you drop it and it's going to shatter too. So, that's, yeah. you're, still, you're still with the times on that one. Yeah, he has a great line in here. He says, uh, for no one, no fictional pirate captain has ever been as cruel as the demands of the times in the mouth of the young. Isn't that a line that you were saying? Or no, you were I, talking about the Pandora's box one. Pandora's box one, but that's yeah. that's a great one too, yeah. Yeah, that's a good he just one. talks about it. Yeah, that's the next page over. Um, on page 10, he talks about this Socratic fear. Um, mm-hmm. He says, people do not seem to have a Socratic fear of being deceived, for the voice of God is always a whisper, while the demand of the age is a thousand-tongued rumor. Um, It's right in the middle of page 10. He says, slow to listen, quick to judge, which Mm -hmm. is a really nice antithesis. I like that as well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this, and it is, I mean, it's a a reversal of uh, John... It's a uh, yeah the opposite of James one nineteen, which is in James one nineteen it says to be quick to listen and slow to judge, and so yeah. he's kind of making this reversal like hey modern society you're slow to slow to listen but quick to judge. If you want to get another one, I like where the the quote you wrote it says undaunted uh, people do not seem to have the Socratic fear of being deceived for the voice of God is always a whisper, while the demand of the age is a thousand tongue rumor. Not an all-powerful call that creates great men, but a stirring in the offal, which the offal is like the the place where you'd grow mushrooms and then kind of like that, like mm-hmm. and that that switch, right? Which is like the voice of God is a whisper, but it create it's an all-powerful call versus the you know the 
the demands of the times are a thousand tongued rumor, but it's just the stirring of the offal. He's like comparing like how big this seems to how little of import it is versus how small something is to how more, how big of an import it is. Um, wow. That's, I didn't catch that the first time. I actually, when I first read it, I went straight to page, this was back in June. I went straight to page 60, 60 and just read the conclusion. <laughs> um, so today is the first day I read this introduction, but he talks to you about how there's something that's above time. There's a power that is superior to the demand of the times for it is eternity's demand. I thought that's pretty cool. And like, what does, and this comes right after that Pandora's box quote, uh, Pandora's yes. box could not contain as many disasters and as much misery as are concealed in the little phrase, the demand of the times. What I liked about it was that the demands of the time can seem so great, right? It's the time. This is the public. And I mean, when you get into later into the book, he goes on a huge, uh, I don't want to say tangent, like a huge, um, stream of thought about what the public means and what the public is and yeah that that is what drives the demands of the time what what is the demands of the time it's well it's what the public what is generally popular what is generally accepted as the truth right mm -hmm. um yeah and but like you said it's transient it's it's changing and it's it's ever-changing and that's the big problem with it is that if you keep up with the demands of the time your time is limited on earth and eventually you will fall behind the demands of the time. And so what's better is to yield to eternity's demand. And it's this, this, um, I don't want to say dichotomy, but separation of like, Hey, there's this temporal time bound system that we all live in. And, you know, Kierkegaard's a, a Christian writer and he's, he's recalling everyone to say, Hey, there's eternity that we all have. Like we all have eternity to look for and we got to make sure that we're sufficing the eternity's demand before we we try to hit up on on the uh, demands of the times mm -hmm. yeah that's such an interesting idea and then later on rounding out this introduction he mentions that the author has been faithful to himself and the reading public has been faithful to the author and yeah being faithful to the author i i took that as like at least you could have goodwill towards someone that has written in the past. I'm thinking of like Mortimer Adler's rules for reading, you know, mm -hmm. don't, don't go in there being disputatious and going in there looking for things to tear it up with. And, you know, rather than just critiquing it, viewing it from the demands of the times, trying to understand them and, you know, see if yeah. they were true to themselves. I think that's a, a great way to, to put it with Adler's um, rules where it's, like you said, don't be disputatious. You're going in with the point of trying to understand what they're teaching, right? Understand what the, the author's saying. And it could be that you're going to come across and you're just be like, I don't agree. But don't go in there being like, hey, he's wrong because he's not up to the times with this. You gotta you gotta read it and try to understand, okay, what's the argument they're actually making and what's wrong with the argument, not just that that argument's yeah. out of date. You know, mm -hmm. just because something is new doesn't make it better. And if you have like this technological materialistic mindset where the latest release of something has bug fixes mm -hmm. or new features or something like that, you know, yeah, like, I this year's mattress is better. This this Mac is better because it's newer. So, of course, it would be better. Why would they release anything that's not better? And therefore science and philosophy you know anyway that i guess that mindset can kind of seep in to us thinking like oh you know the errors of the past have been corrected no i i agree and if you'll uh if you'll allow me to go on a tangent here but it makes me think of arguments i've gotten with people you know that i use vim to edit my code and vim is a text editor that's been around since i want to say the 70s and it's a command line text editor. It's not got a flashy UI and whatnot. And actually I use NeoVim. So it's only been around since like the mid two thousands, but it's a fork off of the original. Um, so it's got that, that line descendancy. And I got an argument with someone who uses VS code, which is really funny because I used to use visual studio code to write my code um, for something like seven years. I wrote with it before I switched. And his wow. point was like, Hey, this is, why would you use Vim 
it's just you trying to show off that you can use this hard, like overly complicated, too hard the thing to use. And it's got no benefits versus a UI like Visual Studio Code. And I just made the point as like, and his point was, hey, Visual Studio Code has all this new stuff and Vim is going to have to play catch up to get it. And I just made the point. I said, that's a, that's a two-edged sword. Something new also has to play catch up with all the built-in features that an old thing has built up over the time, right? It's the same reason that when it comes to like databasing, why is SQL such a powerful thing when it's over 50 years old? Why is relational databasing still done? It's over 50 years old. We've come up with new systems. Well, it's because it's 50 years old. It's a very mature technology and we, and we know that it works versus all these newer technologies have really good niche or interesting applications, but they're new and they are, they're, I mean, juvenile in the sense that they're immature, right? And, mm -hmm. and as they grow into maturity, they, they will be more and more used in different areas. But I think there's this, this like you said, there's this idea of like technological uh, progress where the newest, the latest and the greatest is the latest and greatest and not, not heeding the, the, the older stuff, but also, like I said, it's, it's both. Sometimes the old stuff does need to get replaced. It's, it's super, it's too buggy. It's out of dated. It can't be supported. Mm -hmm. Right. But sometimes the newer stuff is buggy and, and not really worth supporting or not worth getting into, <laughs> not worth, not worth committing yourself to at this time until it becomes more mature, right? It's that that argument between being on the bleeding edge of, of technology versus using tried and true technology. Um, it, you know, sometimes the it's good to use the new stuff and sometimes it's good to, to stick with the old stuff. Sorry for that long tangent on, on technology, but you made me do it. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I can and it makes tell. me think of uh, the quote you 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 told me the other day that um, and I don't want to to make you pull it up, but about Ralph Waldo Emerson was it Ralph Waldo Emerson's on conservatism. Yeah, and and just like there's contention between progress and conserving things, mm -hmm. and that those things can be brought together it can in a be. way. Yeah, yeah, and in it way, should be really. According yeah. to Ralph Waldo Emerson. Do you want to explain what those two ages are and mm -hmm. a little bit about them? So yeah, Kierkegaard goes in in the conclusion, like you're talking about. You can read the introduction. I recommend reading the introduction, skipping the book review, unless you really want to read the book two ages, then I recommend going and reading the book two ages and then reading the book review, but you don't need to. You can skip to page 60. It's, a, it's part three, and it's his conclusion. And he starts out with two ages. He kind of starts talking about the ages. The age of revolution and the present age is what he calls it. So the age of revolution, it's this older age. It's the age in the past wherein um, he has different things, but he, he, he chiefly defines the age of revolution as being, well, chiefly says the age of revolution is defined by passion. Um, so he kind of brings up this idea of passion and then the present age as an age of reflection. Um, and when he's saying reflection, he doesn't mean, well, he does and doesn't. <laughs> There's in some senses where he does mean like the, the reflective person who's, who's sitting and thinking of, and like being reflective about things, but only in a slight sense. What he mostly means with the age of reflection is the person who wants to reflect well, as a mirror, a uh, reflection as a mirror. At least that's the way I read it. It's like you're trying to oh. be within um, like the other. You don't, you don't want to, whereas the age of passion, you're passionate about a, something that's more internally located. Reflection is about external. You're, mm -hmm. you're wanting to, to meet what's external there. And a lot of times that causes internal reflection, the thinking. It's hard because I think in Danish, there were two different words for it. And so, but in English, they both kind of are reflection. Um, and, and so internally reflecting is a thing that happens in both ages, but one becomes very, and I don't want to get too far ahead into this, of the discussion. One is very pronounced and almost malignant in the, in the age of reflection, right? 
Whereas mm-hmm. the age of passion is much more about uh, a passion in something and action, right? It's an age of action yeah. versus an age of, of thinking. And that's how you know there is passion because of that decisive action. Action. Like that's the passion is the impetus behind those, whether they're good or evil, whatever they are, but they yeah. have a distinct like somethingness behind them. There's a, mm-hmm. um, see if I can find it. Where was it? That's good to oh, say. Yeah. I lo- Go ahead. Oh, well, I will have to find the page. So you dive in. I'll, in I'll, in I'll page 66, he talks about, I think, in a sense, he says, hey, the age of revolution, right? The one that is, he says, is essentially passionate. Therefore, it has not nullified the principle of contradiction, which I think is when I read that first one, I was like, that doesn't follow at all. That's a non sequitur, right? Like it's a, it's passionate. Therefore, it hasn't re- nullify the principle of contradiction first of all what's the principle of contradiction and how the you know how is that supposed to follow how's one supposed to follow and you read through it and he's saying like hey basically the principle of contradiction is you can be wrong right and he's saying hey you're essentially passionate that doesn't mean that you can't still be wrong about the actions that you take but because you're passionate you will know if you're wrong or not because you're taking that decisive action you're acting you're not you know you know baby stepping it and just trying to like feel your way around you are taking that leap and then you know you'll know if you you know you're indiana jones you take that leap he couldn't tippy toe off and you know I'm, I'm in the last crusade right he had to take that leap of faith and if he fell he would know he was falling and if he hit the hit the bridge he couldn't see he'd hit the bridge you couldn't see, but you, you couldn't just like try to tippy toe his way out. And that's what he's saying with the age of passion is you're going to know if you're right or right, because you're acting. Yeah. I think if I were Indiana Jones, I would have done the, where you get out of the dust and throw it out there. Yeah. To see. And that's fine. Yeah. He did that. And I, I, you know, in that scene, I think I've been like, there's nothing to grab on there. Right. You're like trying to feel it, like do the, do the squat with one leg off the edge with the other on you know, try to feel it but i'm sure that they could have created it in such a way that that's not possible and hence why yeah. it's the leap of faith yeah to your point it says there under that the age of revolution is essentially passionate therefore it has not nullified the principle of contradiction mm-hmm. a little lower down it says um it is obliged to make a decision but this again is the saving factor for decision is the little magic word that existence respects. If, however, the individual refuses to act, existence cannot help. That's pretty cool. Like it's, no one can help you if you're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you said one time, like the ship, what was that quote from? Well, I definitely Admiral didn't say Hopper, it, but it was the, or, yeah, Admiral Hopper. Grace, yeah, Grace, Grace Hopper, I think. Grace Hopper, like yeah. Yeah. The ship, ship in the harbor was safe. safe but ships weren't made to stay in the harbor. That's not what ships are made for. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we cannot have, um, you can't have a character. You can't have, you can't have a definite shape without action, right? If all you did was just think, it's not that thinking or understanding or intellectual pursuits aren't worthy, or you can't be passionate in those. They're good intellectual competencies, but without passion, they can act, they can frustrate your ability to act. They can get in the yeah. way. And I think that's um, just on the other page. The presence of the crucial either or depends upon the individual's own impassioned desire directed towards acting decisively upon the individual's own intrinsic competence. So it's like you can be intellectually competent or you know have high understanding but there's a different kind of what we're talking about isn't just like a mental exercise or fill out a worksheet figure out your passion in five easy steps or something like this is an intrinsic and he uses that word and that phraseology the the essential inwardness of what this is it's distinct Mm -hmm. it has a definite something it's not wishy-washy and it's not reflecting whatever society or whatever's sending light into it 
it has a definite like somethingness to it that precedes that meaningful action that can mm-hmm. define your character. That's how I get it. That's that's how I understand him. That's no, I, that's why I see is like it. Action is action is a principle of an agent, right? An agent has the will to act, whereas something that's not an agent can't act, and it can only be acted upon. And I think that's what he's kind of saying is like the age of reflection. If you are only, like you said, taking in the 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 light that comes from outside, right? A mirror has no light, has no image of its own. It's only reflecting the image that is cast upon it. Um, the same way, you know, if you are doing that, then you aren't really, you're allowing yourself to not be an agent. You are foregoing your own agency or to because you're not acting, whereas an actor acts. And yes, mm-hmm. actors sometimes choose wrong. And that's they are acting and that they haven't given up that essential and as long as you're willing to act then that means that there is a chance that you can then act to remediate your your wrong decisions and things like that existence will help you if you're if you're willing and able to act but you can't or if you won't or i've been enervated by reflection to the point where you just have no confidence in action yeah like existence can't can't really help you. He was saying that this is a time in, in Denmark in his day and age where that age of revolution and passion had been passed or has passed mm-hmm. on and was being replaced by an age of reflection. And kind of like you were saying, the wording is interesting because I hadn't actually thought of a mirror, but it makes total sense. I was thinking more of like contemplative um mm-hmm. Endless rumination. And that is a point, right? That he makes. Sorry, keep going. Right. Or, and I think he, they said that the word, the wording is a little weird, like reflex, like, like, you know, you Mm -hmm. may hit with that hammer and there's a reflex. Yeah. 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 They, they use the word reflection, like reflex I O N. Yeah. It's almost just like without thought, which goes against reflection. Anyway. That's it, but it is like you're only acting to and it is it seems very contradictory so hopefully we're not mungling it up for everybody but i think that reflex reflection is a great way to put it because you when you when you respond with the reflex it isn't without thought but you're also that's the key point is that it's not you were res- uniquely responding to an out like an outward stimuli right there's this outward stimulus bam and your leg shoots up that's it's just a outwardness. reflex. Yeah. Yes, it's that outwardness. Whereas there is okay to have the thought of the inwardness, right? Whereas like if someone calls me a rude name and I just reflexively respond, that's that's being reflective. Whereas if I take that in and I say, hey, I have the opportunity to decide how I'm going to act, that's, that is in a sense being more, depending on the reasons why you choose, I guess you could say you're passionate towards some kind of ideal of like, you know what, I'm going to refrain because sticks and stones don't break my bones and this is nothing to get worried about. There is that kind of like, you're taking time to think, but it is an active thinking versus a reflexive. But then there is, like you said, there is a sense of, I want to say demasiado, um, just overthinking. And, you know, the, the phrase that's common today is analysis paralysis, right? Where you're just yeah. overanalyzing a situation and because of a fear of commitment, a fear of acting, you refuse to, to act and you, you instead say, Hey, we're going to try this thing, maybe, or that thing. Yeah. He's got a great line about jumping in the pool. Here it is. You know, and it has an address to a Zettel 1122 slash two that I couldn't find. Which oh, makes me feel like lost the Zettel. But it looks like I got it in a different one. But so yeah, page 71. And he says, action and decision are just as scarce these days as in the fun of swimming dangerously for those who swim in shallow water. Just as an adult himself reveling in the tossing waves calls to those younger, come on out, just jump in quickly. Just so does decision lie in existence, so to speak, although, of course, it is in the individual, and shouts to the youth who is not yet enervated by too much reflection and overwhelmed by the delusions of reflection. Quote, come on out, jump in boldly. 
even if it is a rash leap, if only it is decisive, and if you have the makings of a man, the danger in life's severe judgment upon your recklessness will help you to become one. That's like one of my favorite key parts in this whole book. Yeah. Even if it is rash, like it's almost like safe is the value. Safe is the thing you're supposed to be like. It, mm -hmm. Rashness is bad. You know, like you, we want safe driving, not reckless driving. And that's, I would agree to that. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's like, no, no, don't do anything rash. Or if you don't know what to do, don't do anything at all. Yes. Wait, sit on it. Maybe it'll come to you. But whatever you do, don't just make a rash de decision. And that's partly how I was raised. And there is just, there's a lot of fear. Like you look like an idiot or you'll, you'll, I don't know, get set back in the game, the money game, or you make a bad decision buying a house or something mm -hmm. like that. And you don't want to, you know, you don't want to look bad or anyways, things like that. They can keep you from taking positive action, let alone negative action. They can keep you from that. Like you said, that like fear of missing out or fear of better options, the FOMO, FOBO kind of stuff. FOMO, it's, oh, that's such a great point. Because FOMO is something that I think is almost unique to our era, right? Is not, I don't know. Perhaps it existed before, but the term FOMO is very recent, right? Fear of missing out and people have it. And it's, it's this idea of like, like, I'm afraid of missing out. And I think, like you said, I think it's kind of inculcated in our culture. And so it happens. You're like, whoa, if I don't want to miss out on something, right? I just don't want to miss out. Um, and you kind of see this in kids, like my daughter, she, the, you know, she's younger than her two older sisters and she, wants to make sure that she's not getting left behind. You don't want to get left behind. People don't like getting left behind. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a good reason, not, like people don't want to be abandoned. That's not good. But left behind in, in, in the sense of, hey, they're going outside to play. Wait for me. You know, and we, it's kind to wait for, her, but at the same time, it's like you're not missing out on anything. And I think there is this idea, of, we have a very overinflated sense of risk. And that's what he's kind of saying of, of risk adverseness, right? It's okay to be like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put it all, all my savings on black at, at the casino. I think that that is good wisdom, right? Like don't go and gamble yeah. your savings away. But at the same time, right? Like what? He's not advocating stupidity. Stupidity. Yes. And He's equating stupidity. passion and decisiveness with stupidity would be. Yeah. 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 Yes, but he is saying that we have become so risk averse to that fact that when we see someone else taking risks, we don't admire them for the risks they take, but we judge them and we say, oh, like, and secretly, while we might outwardly, if they're successful, I've had this comment with military history, I get frustrated because sometimes it seems like the only difference between a military genius and a military idiot was that they both took risks and one of them panned out, right? Like, oh, he was like, he took this risk, but it was genius. And like, there are like some foolish military people, but a lot of the ones that I would say were foolish were like the ones who were not taking risks or not, not taking wise risks. Like, hey, yeah, like, this is a gamble, but it's worth doing. And they were too cautious, too, too cautious. In fact, boldness is one of the, the guiding principles of the offense, right? Is that you have to be bold, audacious, and, you know, surprise. These are our, these are characteristics that, that define offensive warfare. And so it is kind of silly for the historian to look back at someone who is probably exhibiting these things and be like, that was stupid. It was like, yeah, well, in hindsight, we have 2020, but he was trying to do, you know, unless you have some really good evidence that he should have known at that time, that that was a stupid decision, mm -hmm. maybe cut him some slack and also yeah. maybe be like, Hey, he was trying. Yeah. That's or like the football a, a coach tangent. that makes a call. Exactly. It's, it's like the game is tied. It's the end of the fourth quarter and the coach has to make a call and the ball gets intercepted and the pundits and everybody. The oh, why do you make this? This is the dumbest call. You should have run the dumbest the ball, call ever made. <laughs> and if they had run it, they would have been like, "You should have thrown the ball, not run it." Mm -hmm. or, but yeah, if it, it worked, is. if it had worked out, he would have been, you know, genius, genius call. 
yeah genius yes. call this is why he you know he's paid so much or something like that it's an exact um justification for what Kierkegaard's saying is like this isn't tenable right you can't logically consistently hold both, both of these views like there's got to be the way i'm understanding it, is there's got to be another understanding of saying like what's good risk versus bad risk and and one of the things he's saying is passion right you're doing it passionately and if you're at least doing it passionately and you're being decisive then like you said then the world the environment or or what was the word um existence can then help you guide you into the correct decisions to make through you know pain yes there's going to be pain you're going to make bad you're going to make mistakes but at least you are making mistakes rather than not even attempting right yeah that capacity for passion which got you to make a, de a decision and decision isn't always right obviously a bad one you could end up like the the nfl coach that you're like a hero because it you know you went out into the uncertainty you you won um or it could fail you could you could fall through the ice you know um, yes but it's that passion that got you there in the first place that can help you get out but what if you're just an enervated, reflective person, doesn't have passion, and then you're hit with a setback, then, you know, like it says, existence won't be able to help you because you don't even have the capacity to make a decision, to, to act even if something were given to you. It's a character capacity to not only make decisions, but when, say, it doesn't work out, to have that passion to pull you back up out of it again. I like this part too, because it, it talks about like, how can you tell if you're being passionate or not? It's his parable, the skater on the ice, right? There's some treasure mm -hmm. out on the ice in the passionate age. Some reckless, maybe skater goes out on this thin ice and retrieves it. And everyone is like, wow, this guy just did it. And they they are cheering him and, and really supporting him. And they go home and be like, wow, this is kind of an example of, of when risk paid off and it was great versus the, the the reflective age the present age he says you know a bunch of skaters might go out as far as they're able and come back and even the mm -hmm. skater that does go out there is one who's so skillful that he knows that he's able to go and and gets the and so then everyone throws the party for him right they're they're still outwardly saying this and he but he says in short Instead of being stimulated to being discriminating and encouraging to the good by this festival of admiration, the celebrators would rather go home more disposed than ever to the most dangerous, but also the most aristocratic of all diseases, to admire socially what one personally regards as trivial, because the whole thing had become a theatrical joke and the spirited toasts of admiration had become secret understanding that they could almost just as well be admiring themselves. Yeah. The inspired venture was transformed into an acrobatic stunt. I think it says, yes. yeah. Yeah. So it's not you. And that's the thing is it goes from being inspired adventure to mundane, right? The inspired, this transcendental thing to it's just an acrobatic stunt. It's mundane. This guy isn't like taking any real risk. He knows that he can do it. And that's not saying that you shouldn't do things that like only do risky things, right? You, we do lots of things that aren't risky, but. Yeah. that taking some risk is is okay the other point that he makes in the uh, in the book that i like is that almost and i've seen this in my own life as a reflective person in attention sometimes like when you see someone who does start just be like okay decisiveness it is shocking right it is shocking to someone like whoa whoa we can't move this fast like yeah we haven't thought this through hold we up, haven't, yeah. like whoa hold up uh, even yesterday I was out in my backyard working in my garden and I had not planned to do it that day. I just mowed my lawn. And then I was like, well, I need to clean up the weeds out of this and move some raspberries and, and, and put some bark on. It wasn't like a huge project, but I was like, I haven't planned this project. I wasn't planning to do that this weekend. And so as I was doing, it, I'm like, should I even be doing this? I wasn't planning it. And it's like, no, yeah. just, just do you do have it, justification right? to act if you haven't already yeah. reflected if you haven't reflected on it and that's oh that's a great he's like they spend a reflective person spends so much time on the lead up thinking about something yeah and they do it and then they spend all the time you know back uh back reflecting on it what's the word he uses um you know like 
second guessing and in retrospective in retrospective about it right and instead of he they essentially take a decision which is kind of crazy because you know he's he's always always pushing like hey just be decisive be decisive but even then he's like this shouldn't even be that big of a deal like we we turn indecisiveness into a, a, mo a mountain when decisiveness should just be the molehill of daily life like we should just act and then move mm -hmm. on and not you know it's okay to like learn if there's a mistake learn from it but not spend tons of time in retrospective about this and that yeah it's a uh, something i wrote down on another card was um the connection between this decisive nature and just character and i i think it's on page 71 like if you if one were to do what you're saying tyler if they were to act that way it would definitely change their character it would you know, people, not only how they're seen by others, but how they see themselves, it would, it would change their identity. Like, yeah, I'm a person who does those things. You know, I go on hikes or I'm a runner or, um, I, or I don't do these things, right. I, I, maybe you quit a bad habit or something like that. So it's like character and action, kind of like Aristotle was saying, like, we are that which we continually do doing is the action. And I just wrote down, the boldness of action is what forms the character of man, not the results. Not It's not the results that make your character. It could fail or it, you know, there's a great line from a movie. Um, what was it? Uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. Did you ever see that movie? No. It's about this uh, woman who was an elite in like the 1920s and 30s, probably the 1920s. or Maybe it was the 40s or something. I can't remember exactly. But the point is that she loved opera. She loved singing. She loved performance. And she had so much love for it that she wanted to do it, even though she couldn't sing at all. Oh. <laughs> she was played by Meryl Streep. And of course, Meryl Streep did an amazing job. Anyway, so she, you know, she's very highly respected. She goes out on stage. She gives a rehearsal. And people are like, like what? You know, she's singing this uh, this aria or whatever, and it's terrible. <laughs> and uh, so these critics are like writing up these nasty reviews, like this was just terrible. And um, and her husband tries to like intercept these these critics and stop her. And like, you know how much good she's done for the community. You know what this will do to her. This will destroy her. Um, she's just a woman that you know loves this thing. And he's like, sorry, I've got it. It's my job. I got to report this yeah. story. The point was at one point she says they may say i can't sing but no one can say i didn't sing so yes yeah at least you it's results versus action right like her character she maybe wasn't an amazing singer she wasn't a great singer but she was a singer because she sang Same. she yes she did the action you know yeah and i think that that's you know we we've talked about this a lot but we live in a very results oriented society and there are instances where results are important, right? Like if you continually, yeah, I'm trying to think of something like if you, you act to walk the old lady across the street and each time you do it, she gets run over by a car. That might be, it might be time to stop helping the old lady, right? Those are some <laughs> results that you're, you know, you might need to start thinking about how to do it, but at least, you know, you are trying to be good, but mm -hmm. that's a very extreme example and i think what you're saying is like yeah um it's often more important that you at least acted yeah. in in a way than actually got the result that people were expecting or wanting right and, you and can't do it better if you that's don't do a it. symptom of reflectiveness right it's like results are often in the in the eye of whatever society or the public the society needs to be had right like mm -hmm. the critics in that case I think that's a great, great thing. And I think it's important too. And he doesn't get into this in the book as, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Resoundly, I can't think of the right word, but like when you read the book, it, you can tell that he's very interested in this passion and acting and action, right? Versus reflection. 
Um, but it's harder, I think, to, to suss out, well, okay, what does he think passion means? I think he has it a bit in there, but I think for me, at least, it was a little more difficult to be like, well, what, what does it mean to be passionate about something, right? Because I think even then he talks about it's hard, right? In the book, he even says like, there are things that in the reflective age may look like passion, but they aren't. And it's that it's because it's an essential inwardness, right? There's an essential inwardness in it that it you can't just tell from outward actions and outward results if something is passionate based off of passion or based off of a reflection there's a few indicators right if someone's mm -hmm. being overly reflective about decision making you could be like okay that's being a little reflective but it can be hard um to tell yeah so, so i'd be curious what your thoughts on that are um, <laughs> i have some of my own thoughts on what it means to be passionate about something yeah yeah i, I just last night i was watching rocky too i love rocky i love those movies they're so good um but his wife wants him to retire and wants him to find other work that you know th there's some worry about that first fight with that first fight with apollo creed that he hit him so hard on his right eye that he couldn't see so his peripheral vision was really damaged oh yeah and his, his trainer mickey's like he's gonna crush your skull before you even see it coming you know you know give it up you're too old it didn't work out and so his wife is really worried too that he's going to go blind or die or something and so basically she doesn't give his blessing for him to go back and fight apollo because apollo wants a rematch people are saying you know you didn't really win and you must have been paid to go 15 rounds with this guy so apollo's ego <laughs> is really caught up into this rematch business and so but adrian won't give her blessing and so it shows in his performance and his action going back to this idea of like action that is devoid of passion versus action that has it. He's just like, his training sucks and his, he's just not going to cut it. He's, he's going to get walloped if he goes in there. And then, you know, anyway, she eventually gives her blessing. Spoiler alert. Uh, no. And, uh, and he goes at it and yet. then, you know, the montage turns on he started to like work out with like logs and stuff. It's great. And, you know, he goes on to, to win the title. I was just thinking about that. Like, you know, without, without a why or without a inward essential inwardness, I think that's what he calls crudeness in here. Mm -hmm. That crudeness is what happens when you're doing something perfunctorily, but it you're that essential inwardness is her passion has been taken away. And I, it's, what does he call it? I have a card on crudeness. Let me find it real quick. But if you had no, something no, you want to say. Yeah, I, I like in, um, go ahead then. I'm still looking for what I can say. If the essential passion is taken away, the one motivation and everything becomes meaningless externality, devoid of character, then the spring of ideal ideality stops flowing and life together becomes stagnant water this is crudeness when individuals are essentially and passionately related to an idea oh wait no that's that's a different thought but boy that really hit me like you take away that passion then what is there but it's like all that's left is meat you know all that's left is meaningless externality because there's no reason anyway that's that's on page 62 62 he's talking about how you know the age of revolution is essentially passionate therefore it must be able to be to able to be violent riotous wild ruthless towards everything but its idea which again sounds like whoa is kierkegaard calling for like you know another french revolution or something is he some <laughs> radical anarchist or something like that but yeah. what he's saying is it has to be so distinct that it's not just going to say, oh, okay, you know, whatever, you're you're totally against me. It's going to be like, no, meaning I won't be, I won't be taken down. I won't be removed from my being. I won't be canceled out, <laughs> to use common language yeah. nowadays, because I'm essentially what I am. So I will fight against those other ideas. And again, passionate does not mean necessarily polite or... Mm -hmm right even but it's just saying it's a, it's this quality that he's talking about yeah 
My way I, I like that part there too, because it is something that's like, that's, you read it, it's very almost off-putting when you read it, like, whoa, yeah. this is, and you say we should be passionate, like we should be violent, riotous, wild, ruthless towards everything but this idea. But he says, it's not that he's saying you should be necessarily, he's saying that it must be able to be, right? There must be able to be violent, riotous, wild, ruthless towards everything but this idea, but it's not crude as you were pointing out earlier yeah and i think the point is that it's yeah it's it's kind of like you're saying like if you're going to be passionate about like if there's a passion age of revolution there has to be a central there has to be some kind of idea some kind of ideology for lack of a better word a belief of of something that you are willing to say that this is the core and beyond this, there is no other thing I'm going to go against, right? It's, it is it essentially being like, I, about this, I am closed-minded in a sense, right? Like there is this, and this is my core. And if that's the case, then you can be passionate about that thing. But if you are not willing to give yourself to this, an idea like that, then you are essentially saying, I will, I want to keep my options open about things. And, and Kierkegaard kind of cuts you off on that. And he says, Hey, uh, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, and page 93, I think it's 93. When he talks about uh, the present age. So the top of page 97, he says the present age is essentially a sensible age devoid of passion. Therefore it's nullified. Once again, nullified the principle of contradiction. He says that you don't have to know what's right. You aren't going to be able to figure out what's right. Right wrong but then you go to the second paragraph it says existential expression of nullifying the principle of contradiction is to be contradiction to oneself um here the principle of contradiction strengthens the individual this is the middle of the second paragraph yeah in faithfulness to himself so that just like the constant number three socrates speaks so beautifully which would rather suffer anything and everything than become a number four or even a very large round number he would rather be something small, if still faithful to himself, than all sorts of things in contradiction to himself. And he's kind of saying that, hey, you're leaving this. If you aren't passionate about this thing, like you said, to the point that you you can be. I don't want to say like I'm calling for violence or anything, but, you know, like violent yeah, in a bad. metaphorical sense of like this is and beyond this, I'm not like negotiating. This is my core belief then you are Something trying to be concrete. everything, right? And if yeah. you're trying to be everything, he says you're nothing, right? You're following the demands of the times. The, you're the three really would not be three if it was also four and five and seven and a million, right? It would, but no, three is three. And that's what makes it so powerful because by being um, faithful to itself, it can be something. So it can I, I be a three if it just remains a three and not three. try, you yeah. know, be this. But if it tries to be a million, then it's not, it's worthless. If it tries to be all these other things, it can't. It, yeah. yeah, it's so cool. And I love it. it. It's like, it gets kind of metaphysical. Like being what you are is important. And that kind of goes back to the introduction, you know, venerating the, the, um, those that have been true to themselves, you know, like doesn't mean you have to copy all of those people, but you can venerate that they were true to themselves. That's that, like the demands of eternity kind of thing. Yes. So at the end of the book he kind of is saying that, or at the end of his, his, you know, writing, he's kind of like, he kind of says like, Hey, age of revolution's not coming back. Right. Because in the age of revolution, everyone was passionate in a sense. He doesn't say everybody, but that was the defining characteristic of age. He says, people just aren't passionate these days. And so how you escape it is that you have to find that inner passion that you can have for yourself as an individual. And what I like about it is that he doesn't tell you, I mean, he does say like what he thinks it should be, but he's not saying, um, what's the word, what, where's I going? He doesn't tell you, that he can't prove it to you. That's what I'm saying. He's, he can't prove anything to you. He's saying that's the point about passion is that you have to move on an act of faith in something. You have to believe in something 
And that's, that's what makes you passionate. You're saying, I believe in this. It's an act of faith. And you've got to take that leap of faith. And if you can be decisive in that, that will turn into passion for yourself, which I like a lot. Yeah. Passion is talked about these days is kind of like a Ted talk thing, like mm-hmm. how to, you know, reach back into your childhood and, you know, and that, I think there's, there's elements of truth to that, but no one has talked about passion like Kierkegaard or written, I should say mm-hmm. that I've ever read. I've never heard it discussed in this way. And it gave me a lot of hope. It gave me like comfort in a weird way. Like there's something it's more, it's just really important to do as a person because the alternative is crudeness. Like it's part of being alive and free. It's not just about breaking out of the office job and, you know, founding a startup or whatever it is, you know, creating a bakery, whatever your passion is. It's like, it's how you relate to your freedom as a, as a being, I think, because your alternative is crudeness where you're devoid of the essential passion and you lose your, the meaning of your life. It loses its savor. It loses its vitality. And it's, yeah, I have some thoughts about how that can connect to this other philosopher I like, but I don't want to bring in other people. I know you haven't read. <laughs> no, it's fine. And I, I, cause I was about to do the same thing. So maybe we can, we can do it, but it's, um, it makes me think of, I think, when you talk about the way passion is talked about, and this makes, I think, makes Kierkegaard a little harder to read for people because you have to understand that he's not talking about passion, like you said, the way it is today in Kierkegaard. Passion today, the colloquial sense, I think, is a very mundane term. It's a mundane passion. It's based off of your emotion, right? If I don't feel excited about what I'm doing at a hundred percent of the time. Right. Like I love writing software. I love my job writing software, but I don't feel excited a hundred percent of the time. There are times where I'm like, I don't want to go to work today. Right. Not because I'm not passionate about my work. It's just that. And I think that what Kierkegaard is saying and what you're saying is like being true to yourself doesn't mean that you are emotionally passionate about things, that you are just a hundred percent go all the time. That's exhausting. Yeah. I've been around people like that. And it's very exhausting and it's very mundane in a sense where it's that it's not the meaning of passion. It's that you, I think to me, is that you have a core belief about something, and that is what drives you. Um I will bring it up. C.S. Lewis in many times in near Christianity brings up this dichotomy of like, he talks about being in love and, and, you know, being charitable or being faithful. He says, these aren't things that we often, or hopeful. We often tie these to being emotions that we feel love is an emotion. Faith is, we tie to some kind of emotion or hope definitely tied to an emotion. He said that that's not like the case. Like you are in a hundred percent in control of your emotions. And in the same sense, like if, if you define passion by emotion, then you are defining your passion as something that you don't have control over. And I think that's what often drives people to then be like, I need a coach. I need someone to help me because they don't know. They, they see passion as that emotion. Like, how can I keep that all the time? And it's not the case that you will keep it all the time your you know puppy love fades into greater love right and in, in a and it's not because you've lost that initial puppy love passion that you no longer love the person right your girlfriend or wife or husband or boyfriend it's that it's a different stage and at times you will fall back and you will feel that but there's a there's a difference between the passion and emotion I think that's a really important thing that people lose sight of today. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Kierkegaard is going to hit you at that other level, that sort of non-emotional level that can be hard, not only his language, but as a new idea, like, whoa, this is something different than just feeling psyched all the time. Yes. Yeah. Just be like, I just, I just love, I don't know what people say these days and that's going to sound super critical because i'm sure that some of those people are really passionate about what they do but 
you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just super passionate about X, Y, or Z. It's like, well, and maybe they are really passionate about it, but I think that the term as people understand it is, I just love this a hundred percent of the time. And if I stop loving it, then you, I think that's kind of like the thing is like, if you stop loving something, then you should stop doing it. And that's not passion at all is if you stop loving something in the sense of emotional, like now I, I'm having a hard time expressing my words. Um, but you stop feeling the initial kind of feelings you, that drive excitement. That's okay. That's a, that's a form of maturity of, of stuff. Right. And it's why yeah. it's also important to enjoy those times, right. When you start something new, there's a bit of trepidation and ex- like excitement and trepidation. Whereas once something's become a pattern, you don't feel that anymore. Um, yeah. But that's okay. Like we accept that that's okay. And if we always chase after nostalgia, then we're always going to be, um, you know, vacillating from place to place to place. Once again, sorry, I don't want to bring up C.S. Lewis too much, but he says that a lot. Like the person who's got a limit. If you're, yeah, yeah this my, I, I hit my limit, but you yeah. have hope. You, there's two options. You can either accept that there's, you know, reason for, well, there's three options, but you can accept there's no hope and just give up on hope or you can keep changing because you're trying to get that initial hopeful feeling and never achieving it. Whereas then he says, Hey, there's a third option, but I think Kierkegaard's kind of in a similar feel, but when you're passionate, it doesn't mean that you are always going to feel that same initial passion or even that you might not feel it at first at all. That's okay. I think that sometimes people think I don't feel emotionally excited about this so i must not be passionate there's something wrong with me i'm gonna stop doing this thing that i thought i loved and they get like in this reflective spiral and then they end up not doing what they they love doing and that's a tragedy that's a great point anything else you want to talk about from the two ages i've talked too much so i should let our very generous listeners go well, I've stolen um, too much of their time already. Don't I'm worry, I'm passionate. I'm just so up. passionate about passion. <laughs> no, it's my passion, hundred percent of the time. If you could recommend He's, this book to somebody, how would you sum it up? He was wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, how would I sum up the book? That's good. I would say, you know, someone asked me the other day, hey, "What are you reading?" Because I had it. And I was like, "It's his philosophy on passion." It was really dumb. So it's a good way. How would I summarize the book? I would say. In Kierkegaard, he sums up his view on a difference between a past age and the present age and the importance of inward passion over outward reflection. And that's really a bad summary because I think that people would not understand what I'm talking about at all. And so it's hard to be, he, he, he talks about the, the importance of having inward beliefs and over external motivations and external like i think that would be a way to kind of explain it to someone without them knowing the vocabulary that kierkegaard knows awesome well thank you so much for your time tyler thank um, you nate thanks for yeah. having me guess we'll call it good there all right all right See ya. thanks See ya. bye bye